There's an old children's song that some of you are likely familiar with, Jesus Loves Me. Perhaps the most popular line of that song is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now that's a line that any Christian can sing because indeed every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has been told multiple times through the scriptures that Jesus indeed loves them. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19 for instance, Paul tells the Ephesians that he was praying for them that they would better comprehend the incomprehensible love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In Romans chapter 8, for instance, verse 35, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the implied answer is, no one. And what's implicit in verse 35 becomes explicit in verses 38 and 39, where we find that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. When Paul's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 5, as he's exhorting the Ephesians to walk in love, he said, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. John, in the book of Revelation, wrote of Jesus as him who loves us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. But then that love is communicated in other ways as well. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, for instance, when Jesus said, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. That's strong language. Jesus isn't holding back. And one of the reasons why those words are so serious is because in the eyes of Jesus, his people are so precious. So those words are communicating something of the holy ferocity of divine judgment, but at the same time, they're communicating the utmost care and concern that God has for His people. To touch God's people, to use language from Zechariah 2, is to touch the apple of His eye. Referring to the pupil of one's eye, an area of our bodies that that we are instinctively protective of. Additionally, the Hebrew word for pupil that's used there, ishon, could be understood as a diminutive form of the word man, understood as little man. And then when you combine that little man with the words that follow, bat ayin in the Hebrew, little man of the eye, it may connote an idiomatic expression that means something like this. Speaking of the little man in a person's eye, as that person beholds somebody else within their sight. As though to say that, God's people are the object of his sight and the utmost concern, and of the utmost concern. So to touch the apple of God's eye, to assail one of God's people in one way or another, is to invite divine retribution. And I say that because I think that's part of what we're supposed to see in this psalm. God's intervention in this psalm, depicted in poetic terms, is not just about him being against those who are against his anointed. It's about him acting on behalf of his anointed, one in whom he delighted, as we find out in Psalm 18:19. So you're not just meant to see the holy ferocity of divine judgment that happens when one comes against God's anointed. You're meant to see the utmost care and concern that he has for his people. And in New Covenant terms, that would be all who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, as we make our way into the text, by way of a brief review, I want to say that so far we've seen that God is so great a deliverer. Recall the ascriptions that David used in the second half of verse 1 and verse 2. Recall also how God responded to David's prayers. You see the paradigm in verse 3, and then you see how David had access to God's ear in verse 6. And then, in verses 7 through 19, some of which we'll be studying today, you see the response of the Almighty, depicted in poetic and metaphoric language, in response to David's cries. So you've seen how God is so great a deliverer. We've also begun to see how he brings about so great a deliverance. You look in verses 4 and 5, and we find out that David was gripped by the cords of death. Beginning of verse 6, he cried out to God. Second half of verse 6, God heard him. And then what happens? Verse 7, then we see that the earth quaked. We see God depicted as though smoke were coming out of his nostrils and as though fire was proceeding from his mouth because he was angry. Verse 8, we see him bring the clouds low and we see dark clouds fill the skies, connoting again his anger in verse 9 and verse 11. And then we see God manifest his presence in time and space as he rides in upon his angelic chariot. Verse 10. And that's just the beginning of the depiction. We'll see the rest of it as we get into our text today. But we will also see before we are finished that not only is God the one who is so great a deliverer, and not only does he bring about so great a deliverance, but in his eyes, he rescues so precious a people. We'll see that before we finish today. But we begin in Psalm 18, verse 12, where we read, From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. Now that phrase, from the brightness before him, could represent God's own resplendent brightness, which was covered by the dark clouds that surrounded him. God's presence brings with it brilliance. You think of Asaph's words in Psalm 50, verse 2, when he wrote, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Think of Habakkuk's words in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 4, when he said that God came from Taman and from Mount Paran, his brightness when that happened was like the light. Now others perceive this, the first half of verse 12, from the brightness before him, others perceive this to be a reference to lightning, as though there were flashes of light that pierced through the dark clouds that were previously painted with David's words. But, given the forthcoming references to lightning, you're going to see lightning referenced in verse 14. I'm excited for when we get there. And given the word that's used here to connote brightness, it's a word in the Hebrew that could be rendered as brightness or brilliance or dawn or radiance. It speaks of the brightness of God in Habakkuk 3, 4. I lean towards the former, that this is talking about God's own resplendent brightness that was covered by the dark clouds in the imagery. Now we also see, if you look at the second half of verse 12, more divine weaponry. Hailstones and coals of fire. Now yes, we're in the Psalms. And yes, this is poetic. But I want to remind you, as I've been reminding you, that David is drawing from real history. The language here is figurative, but David is drawing from historical events. Recall the seventh plague, as it's recorded in Exodus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. There we read, 
And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord, or Yahweh, sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord, or Yahweh, rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now one could only imagine how frightening that was for the Egyptians who saw this strange mixture of fire and hail assailing Egypt, clearly connoting divine displeasure and in no uncertain terms communicating God's wrath. Even as it does, by the way, in the book of Revelation, when at the sound of the first trumpet, hail and fire are sent down to earth. Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. Now among the myriad of reasons why it is foolish for the creature to challenge the Creator, among the many reasons, and indeed there are many, one of the reasons would be that the Creator has at His disposal all of creation. It's folly to challenge the Creator in any sense of the term. The coalition, you might remember, the coalition that was arrayed against Joshua in Joshua chapter 10, they came to find that out as the Lord sent hailstones from the sky to defeat that army. At least more were defeated and killed with the hailstones that descended from the sky than were through the sword of the people of Israel. The world in rebellion, as depicted in the book of Revelation, has to deal with a God who levies the powers of His creation, who controls His creation, levies them in judgment against a world in rebellion. I say this just by way of quick application to us. That we, even though we're Christians and we love Christ and the Gospel, we should be careful not to rebel against our Creator. But what should we do? To use language from 1 Peter 4.19, we should commit our souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. 1 Peter 4.19. And that brings us to verse 13, where we read, The Lord, or Yahweh, thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Now, if any of you have ever had dogs, you know that when it begins to thunder out in the midst of a storm, they become, shall we say, a little scared and restless. They may begin to bark, or they cry, or they go under the bed. And even if you haven't gone under the covers in the midst of a thunderstorm, you likely have known that sense of smallness that you feel when there's a loud cracking of thunder. It's as though you're reminded of the greatness of God. Even if it's just in a a reverberating, peripheral kind of way, you feel nonetheless this sense of smallness. And that shouldn't be too surprising, seeing that the Scripture likens thunder to the voice of God. And this isn't something that just happens once or twice. It happens repeatedly. And I think it makes sense that that would happen because I do think it communicates to some degree His mysterious omnipotence. But before we get there and contemplate that imagery further, I do want to say this. Again, we're drawn to historical events. This is poetry. But David is drawing upon true history. We're drawn back to the seventh plague in Egypt. Because not only did the Lord assail Egypt with fire and hail, but He also assailed Egypt in that same plague with thunder. Exodus chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. We're also drawn again to Mount Sinai, where that theophany at Mount Sinai included, among other things, thunder. Perhaps we also recall 1 Samuel chapter 7, 
when the Lord thundered with a great thunder against the Philistines so that they were confused and scared and before they knew it, they were routed by the Israelites. So David is here using this kind of imagery to communicate how frightening, how formidable God's intervention was on his behalf. And the metaphor itself, I would argue, is worth contemplation. So simply put, as I've already said, David was likening God's voice to thunder. Fittingly, this is a metaphor that most people can relate to. And it's a metaphor the scripture uses quite often. For example, David, in Psalm 29, verse 3, the first half, he said, The voice of the Lord is over many waters, the God of glory thunders. In Psalm 104, the psalmist described the work of God on the third day of creation by saying, At your rebuke they, speaking of the waters, fled. The voice of your thunder, at the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. In Job 37, Elihu used this imagery quite a bit. When speaking with Job, he talked about how God, how Job should hear attentively the thunder of God's voice. You see that in verse 2. He said that God thunders with a majestic voice, verse 4, and that God thunders marvelously with his voice. As a quick aside, the allusion to thunder is seen by the accompanying references to things like snow and lightning in that same uh, chapter. Now, the connection between the voice of God and thunder is also seen in the Gospels, well, particularly the Gospel of John. You might recall that in John chapter 12, when Jesus said, Father, glorify your name, John 12, 28, that all of a sudden, in the next verse, we read that a voice was heard from heaven, and that voice that came from heaven said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But then we find out that some of the crowd that stood there and heard it, they thought it had thundered. So while the words were spoken distinctly, the glorious nature of the voice heard was associated with thunder. So if you want to get a glimpse of the grandeur of God's voice, next time you find yourself in the midst of a thunderstorm, listen to the loud cracking of the thunder. And if you want more help, in seeing the great contrast, the great divide between God and yourself, hear the question that God posed to Job as though it were posed to you. Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like His? Job 40, verse 9. No matter how deep your voice is, it's not as deep as the Most High. Now, by way of a concluding observation in this verse, notice... David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, used what I would say is clearly and appropriately appellation for God. Most high. Most high. Yahweh is the highest authority. Yahweh, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the highest authority. He is exalted above and beyond all of His creatures. He is the most wise, the most glorious, most powerful, supreme and superior in all categories that befit his holy majesty. And when you think about how exalted the Most High is, I think it can help us get a better sense of how great his condescension was in the gospel. So the more you see how high and holy and exalted the Most High is, the more you'll marvel at the gospel grace that the Son of the Most High 
to use language from Luke chapter 8, sent by the Father, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, to bring about the greatest rescue mission ever undertaken. That brings us to verse 14, where we read, He sent out His arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and He vanquished them. Perhaps it goes without saying, but I'll nonetheless say it, David here is continuing to describe his God-wrought deliverance in poetic fashion. The superscript, if you recall, spoke of how God delivered David from his enemies. While the enemies of the superscript are the foes of this verse. More about his foes a little bit later on in this exposition. How did David paint the picture of his deliverance here? Well, he said that he, speaking of God, sent out arrows and scattered the foe. Well, what arrows is he speaking of? That's explained in the second line of this verse. Lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Now note, while lightning is often associated with the revelation of God's presence, you can see it again in the Theophany of Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19, verse 16. You could see it in the display of God's mobile chariot throne as it's depicted in Ezekiel 1, verse 13. You could see it in the glimpse that John got of God's throne in heaven in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. It's associated with John's sight of the temple in heaven as well in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19. But it also metaphorically describes... God's arrows with which he scatters and vanquishes his enemies, even as is the case in this verse. So it could be associated with God's presence, just communicating some of the greatness and the brilliance of his presence, or it could be used as a kind of metaphor to describe his weaponry. Now the picture that David is painting here is not difficult to see. As he recalled his past deliverances, it's as though God sent out a concentrated bombardment of lightning bolts to vanquish his enemies. Now the word that's used here for vanquish connotes discomforting or confusion. It speaks of how David's enemies were thrown into a state of dismay or disarray as a result of the metaphoric lightning barrage. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Maybe in the storm that we had the other day, you thought about it. I was outside on the porch making some phone calls, and the storm's happening. It's raining. It's thundering. And then there's a little bit of lightning. There wasn't much lightning, but there was a little lightning. Have you ever imagined how little a human army could do if the lightning bolts of the heavens were arrayed against them? Just just imagine. I mean, these lightning bolts, their temperature is about 36,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The lightning bolts themselves carry millions of volts of electricity. They travel at around 270,000 miles per hour. What could a human army do if the lightning bolts of heaven were arrayed against them? Arrayed against them. Nothing. I think it's not difficult to see how lightning is a reminder of the contrast between God's glorious power and our human frailty. But again, sometimes it helps to have that contrast put to you in the form of a confronting question. Imagine God asking you the same question he asked Job. Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Job 38, verse 35. 
That'll put us in our place, won't it? Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you sent out lightning? <laughs> exactly. Neither have I. <laughs> it's been a while. I've never done that. Neither Job, nor you, nor myself. We don't have the power to send out lightning at our command. Zeus is mythical. Yahweh is actual. And while human technology has made great advances as it relates to electricity, the most glorious one through his, through his creation has the power to not only create lightning, but as we see repeatedly in the book of Job, he superintends the direction in which it goes. So I do think lightning should remind us of God's glorious power. I do think lightning should remind us of how frightful it would be to stand before God as an enemy, not reconciled to him through the death and resurrection of his son. But I think lightning could also remind us of the forthcoming return of the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the scripture talks about when Jesus comes. It'll be as noticeable as lightning that lights up the night sky from the east to the west. When the Son of Man comes, it's not going to be a private thing. Nobody's going to have to say, he's over there, he's over there, to draw from language in Luke's gospel. Nobody will need to say that because it will be an unmistakable, publicly seen, universally beheld event. That's what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. It's going to be like lightning. And while it's likened to lightning that fills up the night sky, it will exponentially dwarf the brightness of even the brightest of lightning bolts that human eyes have ever seen. That's what it'll be like when Jesus comes back, and indeed he is coming back. That brings us to verse 15. In verse 15 we read, Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, or O Yahweh, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Can you imagine what it was like to see the Red Sea part? Like to see it firsthand. I have not seen a lot of movies in which that is depicted, but I would find a way to see the clips of that moment depicted in motion pictures or even in animation to see what it was like. How did they do it in that movie? Because I just love the thought of seeing all of a sudden the waters going back and forth. And then in a moment, all of a sudden, they're parted. They're standing in heaps on either side. And the ground that was previously unseen is then seen. What power? What would it be like to see that? There was no way of escape. And then a way of escape was miraculously carved for the children of Israel. And how was such a feat accomplished? Well, to use language from 2 Samuel which David appears to borrow in the recounting of what he wrote there. He appears to borrow from Moses in Exodus 15.8. How was that feat accomplished? At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Now when you're reading through the Exodus account, you can see that that anthropomorphic language of the blast of the Lord's nostrils, that it was associated with a vehement east wind. We see that repeatedly in Exodus chapter 14 and 15. We see it a few times. So David may be using Exodus imagery here to say that's what it was like when God rescued me. It was like he parted the Red Sea. 
It was like the Exodus event. And to be sure, David's been using a number of imagery, a number of different images leading up to this point. And as a result, there are some that think that when David wrote, then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were uncovered, some think that he might be referring to the aforementioned lightning in verse 14. That it was the lightning that lit up the waters in such a way that the ground was seen. Or that there was such a strong earthquake, to go back into language that we see earlier in this account, and back in verse 7, that the earthquake caused the, the ground below the ground to be seen as the ground was broken up. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think in light of the language that's used in the text itself, Look at the text. Look at the second half. After David says the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered, notice what he says. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So he's connecting that with the blast of the Lord's nostrils. Again, that's just anthropomorphic language. It wasn't like a literal thing that happened. It's that God, by his mighty power, sent a east wind, a vehement east wind. And it's the same kind of language we see Moses use in Exodus chapter 15. Same kind of language that's used in Exodus 15, 8. So with that being said, I think what's going on here is that David is saying something like this. When God delivered me, it was like he parted the Red Sea. To use language from Alec Moitier, it's as though it was the work of the Exodus God in action when he delivered me. Now, I call your attention to this for a few reasons. And one of the things I'm hoping will happen as a result of our study through Psalm 18, yet alone the Psalms in general, is that there will be a growing appreciation for spirit-inspired poetry as we study it. And one of the reasons I say that is, if you go through 1st and 2nd Samuel, you will see details, historical details of David's deliverance that you do not see here. But when you go through this psalm, you see spirit-inspired snapshots, if you will, of David's deliverer that you won't see there. So you shouldn't think, and I don't think anybody in here would necessarily think, that, you know, biblical narrative is where it's at. We don't need all this depiction, all this poetry in Psalm 18. We have the historical details in First and Second Samuel. No, no, no. We need both. Both are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to the dramatic rescue that's depicted in verses 16 and 17. David says, He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. David here is depicting his rescue. His rescue. Now, just about any sort of rescue that you can imagine can have an element of drama to it. It can be dramatic. You can imagine a firefighter rushing out of a burning building, carrying someone on his shoulder, You can imagine an emergency room doctor performing life-saving surgery on somebody who comes in with life-threatening wounds. You can imagine a police officer who not only arrests a suspect who is undertaking a robbery and, and robbing a store or something like that, but you can imagine lives preserved when that happens. Now imagine, alongside of those images, imagine somebody drowning in water. 
And whether it's a lifeguard or a concerned citizen or a family member seeing that person, and you know that every moment counts, it's as though a life is hanging in the balance. Perhaps even that person is going deeper into the water, second by second. You can imagine the drama as somebody jumps into the water, swims towards that person, grabs their hand, and pulls them out. That's the kind of imagery, at least in part, that David is using here. David was the object of God's search and rescue mission. He described it like this. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. So David depicts himself as a man who's on the verge of death from drowning when God sent from above. Now, you might say, well, what did God send from above? Some suppose that he sent an angel from above or maybe the angel of the Lord. Some, drawing from other psalms, say, well, maybe he'd send forth his word, as in Psalm 107, verse 20. I want you to know that that first phrase, he sent from above, could be rendered as he stretched out, or he reached out. And I think that's the idea. Regardless of how you render that first phrase, that's the, clearly the idea based upon what comes next. Based upon what comes next, we can clearly see that God sent from above in the sense that He reached out His hand from above. He is the one, if you look at the text, who took and drew David out of many waters. Now this speaks not only of deliverance in general, but deliverance that's personal. He took and drew me out. The language of being drawn out is coming right from Exodus chapter 2, verse 10, I believe, talking about Moses when he was drawn out of the water. Same Hebrew word is used there. David is describing himself as one who was drawn out. God was in the business of saving, and that was good news for David, who was sinking. Now think about this. To apply this to us for a moment, just think. Even though what's here is figurative, it would become in many ways a reality for Peter specifically, who when he was on the water and when he began to sink, he cried out to the Lord to save him. And then we're told, quote, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took him. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. That wasn't metaphoric, but it was emblematic. Every sinner who has been saved by grace, any one of you who has come to the Lord Jesus Christ, at some moment you perceived yourself to be drowning as it were. Yes, in one sense you were spiritually dead, but in another sense you were drowning at the same time on the way to temporal death. And then after temporal death would come eventually the resurrection of the unjust and then you would be sentenced to what's called the second death. We were all in that place when by the grace of God we cried out to the Lord and immediately upon our crying out to Him, the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to the Gospels took up residence in our heart and we were snatched from the waters that were drowning us. That's what it looks like to believe the gospel. So you have the metaphoric imagery here in Psalm 18. You have the literal example of Peter and the gospel. And then at the same time, we remember it's emblematic for us. And when we cry out after the Spirit of God awakes us to our dreadful plight, that we're in danger of drowning and we have a much greater fear than drowning. We deserve the righteous wrath of God, yet by the grace of God we cried out to God our Savior and were drawn out of the perilous waters of forthcoming divine judgment. Now the many waters that David spoke of here appears to refer to physical enemies and physical calamity. It's imagery that he 
does use elsewhere. Many waters are essentially akin to deep trouble. You don't have to take my word for it. Look at the next thing that David essentially says. He delivered me from my strong enemy. Connection between many waters and strong enemy. And in case you wanted him to be more specific, he goes on and he says, from those who hated me. Now notice he's using both singular and plural language. So it suggests he's taking a big picture view of his enemies. You know, he had a strong enemy. You might call to mind Saul. You might call to mind Goliath. You might call to mind maybe perhaps others, but then he also had a lot of enemies. It reminds me of the specific superhero cartoon as a kid of a superhero who had put many of the bad guys behind bars and they were all sitting around talking about how they wanted to get him as they were sharing stories about how he put them behind bars. Well, David had a lot of people who wanted to get him at one point or another. He had Saul. and He had the Philistines. He had the army of Israel arrayed against him under Saul. He had the army of Israel, at least part, arrayed against him under Absalom. David had a lot of enemies that were against him. But he knew, as you can see here, that it wasn't his shepherd ingenuity that would save him, but Yahweh's outstretched arm. And when human weakness appeals to Yahweh's omnipotence, one is usually in a safe place when circumstances are threatening. At least they have ultimate safety. Now, I want to make one more application to us in this verse before going to verse 18 and 19. We could see ourselves in this psalm, at least in this verse, in these verses, in more ways than one. We were delivered from an enemy too strong for us. Do you realize that when you came to Christ by the power of God, you were to use language in Acts 26 verse 18, you were turned from the power of Satan to God. You were delivered from an enemy that was too strong for you. And I think what makes this all the more stunning is that we were enemies ourselves. So God delivered His enemies from a stronger enemy and He made us even much more than His friends. He made us His family with new birth from above. That brings us to verse 18 where we read, They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. When David wrote, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, the language is reminiscent of what we saw earlier in Psalm 18, verse 5, when he said the snares of death confronted me. The word confronted could be rendered as met or to come before. So you can imagine David's enemies presenting themselves before him, thinking they had him, intersecting him, meeting him, and that group being formidable, too formidable for David, so so much so that he called that day the day of my calamity. It would have been the end of David many times if it wasn't for the Lord. Look at what he says in the second half of the verse. But the Lord, or Yahweh, was my support. The word support speaks of something that upholds something else. Pretty simple to get. The Lord was his support. The Lord was holding him up. Perhaps it calls to mind for you that hymn. And that hymn where we're told, when all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. The idea is that God is the support of His people. I just want you to think about this. If you had nothing left to lean on, if so much was taken from you, that you had nothing left to lean on, you say, "Ah, for so long I leaned on my health. For so long I leaned on my finances. For so long I leaned on a stable society. If so much was taken away from you, 
you would nonetheless not be without support. At the end of the day, the Lord would be your support and your stay and would safely bring you into His eternal kingdom, son or daughter of God. That brings us to verse 19. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because He delighted in me. Now, you wouldn't as readily appreciate a broad place, because like you might read that and say, he brought me out into a broad place, big deal. <laughs> you know, like, why, why, I'm, not, I'm not really too impressed by that. But if you were previously confined to a tight place, you would readily appreciate a broad place. And David is communicating here something like that. Like he had been in tight straits, and he knew what it was like to be in tight straits. He knew what it was like to sleep in caves, so he knew what it was like to literally be confined to places and on the run for his life. But God had brought him out into a broad place. A broad place. Now notice again, who is he describing deliverance to? Not, not to himself. He says, he also brought me into a broad place. He brought David out to a broad place. A broad place connotes a sense of freedom, safety, relief. And think about how many times you and I as Christians could say the same thing. Speaking of temporal circumstances, you're here. So if you were previously in one tight spot or another, you got brought out of that tight spot. And it wasn't because you that you got out of that spot. (laughs) At the end of the day, it was because of God. He brought you out. So you may not have been in the same tight spots as as David, but you could say in like manner, he also brought me out. You can hear David saying that. You can say, me too, me too. The people of Israel, that's what they were meant to say. They were meant to sing this, not just as David's words, but as their own. So you could say this as well. But I do want to say this. However broad the place that we've been brought out into and never how tight the places that we were saved from so that those broad places, metaphorically speaking, would be perceived as broad, it can't compare with the broadness of the place that Christ is bringing all of his people to. In his Father's house, there are many dwelling places. The Savior has gone to prepare a place for his people, to use language from John 14. And one day, all of his people will enjoy that broad place. Even the most broadest of places here will be perceived as tight, so to speak, when compared with the broadness and the freedom and the safety and the relief that is found in that place. Now we come to the last line that we'll be studying today. David went on to provide the divine rationale for his deliverance. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Because he delighted in me. I think we do well to see this, this last line, in at least two senses. One, most immediately, the contextual sense. What does this mean most immediately, and then how might we understand this by application ultimately to David and even to us? Well, contextually, I think it's worth noting that in the verses that follow, when we continue our study in Psalm 18, Lord willing, we're going to see that David says, in no uncertain terms, that the righteous God rewarded him for his righteous behavior. You see that very clearly in verses 20 through 24. David experienced deliverance, at least in part, because Yahweh delighted in his obedience. And the Lord does indeed delight in obedience. 
Specifically, if you want to reference 1 Samuel 15.22, obedience to his voice. And while grace and not obedience secures a believer's salvation, obedience should never be disregarded. Granted, it's the grace that brings about the obedience to believe the gospel. It's grace that brings about saving faith to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. But at the end of the day, it's grace through faith that brings about salvation, not obedience. But obedience should not be disregarded. Doubtless, there is much temporal deliverance. Like, not ultimate deliverance from the wrath of God, but temporal deliverance in the here and now that has not come a believer's way because of unrepentant disobedience. More about that, Lord willing, when we get into the next section of the psalm. But then I think there's an ultimate reality that we are to be at least reminded of here. That David was an object of God's delight according to sovereign grace. God delighted in David in the immediate sense that I just expounded, but David was also an object of God's delight in a sense that transcends our ability to understand. Even as God told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So it's not that there was pre-existence for Jeremiah, but God knew Jeremiah before he even formed him in the womb. Even as New Testament Christians are told in this awesome and mysterious way that we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. And that it was in love that he predestined his people, Ephesians 1.5. So David was the object of God's delight. And God delivered him because he delighted in him. In the most immediate sense, as I expounded, but then there was an ultimate sense that um, was the canopy over which the immediate sense was. Well, what might our study so far in Psalm 18 mean to you? (laughs) What might it mean to me? I hope it has done the following. I hope it has helped you to appreciate the great glory of your God as David drew from one image in the Old Testament after another to show forth God and His majesty, sovereign, majestic, powerful over creation in a rather unique way. I hope it reminds you that this is also your song to sing. That when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it was as though God stretched down, parted the sea, brought you out of death into life and into union with His Son. This is your song. This is your story. This is your song you could say. Oh, the good news of the Gospel depicted for us in historical terms that we can understand as we see in so many places, and then also depicted for us in beautiful poetic terms, oftentimes using Old Testament imagery that we're seeing through new covenant lenses. And perhaps you have a greater appreciation for spirit-inspired poetry, seeing the unique things that poetry could do as it communicates the greatness of the deliverer and the greatness of the deliverance that he brings about for his people. Let's go to our God in prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name and I thank you, Lord, that you are so great a deliverer. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that you bring about so great a deliverance and that though we were enemies of yours and alienated from you through our wicked works, Lord, we thank you that nonetheless, according to your eternal esteem, You regarded us as a people 
a people to be redeemed and to be identified as Your people, indeed precious in Your sight. Father, I pray that every son or daughter of Yours in this place, Lord, would have a fresh sense of their, um, of their worth, as it were, in Your sight. That You love Your people with this great love and that You not only act against those who are against your people in one sense, in a temporal sense, and doubtless we know in the ultimate sense, but you act on behalf of your people in so many ways in the here and now, the greatest of which is bringing us to the gospel of your Son. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for grace that is truly amazing. And Father, I pray, yet again as we do week in and week out, that anyone who would be hearing my voice, whether it be, Lord, via the live stream or in this room, Lord, whatever it might be, And if such a one has not come to that place of trusting in Christ for that ultimate deliverance, from deliverance from the wrath to come, from the wrath of God through faith in the Son of God, Father, if it be Your will, perhaps today would be such a day, Lord, uh, that the skies would open up, as it were, and Your Holy Spirit would just be sent from above to open such a heart, Lord, and bring such ones to the Gospel. Hallelujah. Thank you for your word. You are awesome and you are great and you are greatly to be praised. Even as we sang earlier, who is like you? Thank you, God of glory, for revealing yourself to us in a fresh way through Psalm 18. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.